truly is one of those moments that I want the song to keep going. <laughs> Amen. Thank you all very much. But this time, I want to dismiss the children for Children's Church. If you have pre-registered, you can meet Miss Amy there at the back door. And uh, she, she will lead you toward children's worship today. Now, while the children are being dismissed, for those of you that are remaining, please take your Bible and open it to Philippians chapter 2. Today is the last Sunday in our series thinking about the songs of Christmas that are found in the New Testament. We've been looking at different hymns that are found in the pages of our Bible that reflect upon the meaning of Christ's coming. So today we look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 because here we're going to see some instruction on really how to have Christmas every day. As you're turning there, I do want to give a praise that uh, Emma, my daughter, has continued to do well. We've been battling a little bit of an ear infection this week, but uh, things are looking better there. Just a real praise. Emma has blood drawn every week. We check her labs every week because that's one of the ways we can determine if something is going on. And for the last month, her labs, the majority of them, have been in normal range or getting to normal. Church, it's been four years since she has had labs that were completely normal. So, and you know, in talking with doctor, our doctor about this, there's not really anything we're doing differently. We just chalk it up to God is at work. Uh, so thank you for your prayers and continue praying to that end. Amen. Now, let's take a look at this passage from Philippians. This letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi is one of his most personal letters. In fact, it's one of the few letters he wrote to a church where he really doesn't correct anything. He simply comes alongside them to tell them to, to keep doing what they're doing, to keep growing in the faith. In fact, a common theme found in every chapter of Philippians is joy. You're going to see that even in the passage we read today. That's why I wanted us to think in terms of really experiencing Christmas every day. So follow with me as I read aloud verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you bow with me in prayer once again? Father, we ask your blessing upon this time of proclamation. Your word is truth. 
And we know that it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would incline our hearts that we would be willing recipients of your word. Help us not to fight against it, but to receive it gratefully and obediently. That the name of Christ may be glorified. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Now, I know that just a moment ago when I talked about Christmas every day, there's probably a wide range of responses to that. Because when you think about Christmas, it's like there's one, this one day where there truly is a sense of peace and well-being and serenity. Something that I like to do on Christmas when it's not negative three degrees is to step outside and listen to the silence. It's one of the few days throughout the year there's not the ambient noise of traffic in the background. There's no one really out doing anything. And I just I stand out there for a few minutes and just breathe in that serenity. That's what we'd like to keep. But I also recognize that the think of Christmas every day brings up some different emotions. Maybe even a, a chill goes up and down your spine because you think Christmas every day? Do you know the pressure that I have to get the perfect gift for someone who has everything? Do you know that my family is coming over for Christmas? And indeed, when Dickens wrote A Tale of Two Cities, he may have been thinking about family reunions. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There's cooking. There's things to do. I'm not sure that I want that every day. But deep down, don't we hunger for that serenity? In many ways, our celebration of Christmas <clears throat> excuse me, is similar to what took place on Christmas Day in 1914. World War I was just a few months old. And it was the days of trench warfare. The British soldiers had dug down and they were in their trench. And approximately 50 yards away was the German army dug down in their trench. And they were shooting back and forth. The bullets were flying and the bombs were indeed bursting. But the morning of Christmas Eve marked a truce. At least for Christmas there would be no bullets, no bombs, just quietness, reflection. As Christmas Eve day turned to night, a baritone voice lifted from the, the British trench singing, the Lord is my shepherd. A few moments later, a German voice answered singing, Der Herr ist mein Heiter. The Lord is my sanctuary. When Christmas morning dawned, there were no bullets, no bombs. The silence. Until a group of British soldiers stepped out of their trench, not carrying a weapon, but carrying a ball. Some of the Germans saw what was happening and they came out of their trench. And that Christmas day in 1914, in no man's land, an area was cleared. And the British played the Germans in a game of soccer. England won, one to nothing. But then the sun rose on December 26th. Instead of voices singing, Bullets flew through the air. Bombs 
Bombs were delivered carrying their ugly message of death. Isn't that tragic? Moment of peace surrounded by the violence of war. If you allow me to make that comparison, I feel like we go through something similar. We have this day that we build up toward, and it's a day where, Lord willing, there is time with, with family. There is celebration. There really is a sense of peace and something unique. But then what happens the next day? We go back to the grind and the grief of everyday living. So when I talk about experiencing Christmas, my goal is to experience that joy and that peace in some way every day even in the midst of the struggles of life. That's why I wanted to look at this passage in Philippians. Because it looks behind the curtain of what took place there in the manger to explain exactly what happened and why it happened and to encourage us to set our mind on that event as a model for how we are to live our lives. You see, we may know the story, and I, I really hope we are familiar with how a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And for this taxation, every person had to go to the home of their line, their lineage. So David takes his wife Mary, or his betrothed Mary, who is very pregnant, and they travel to Bethlehem. And while they were there, as we discovered earlier in the kids' video, there were no rooms in the hospital. So she gave birth in a stable. This event that seemed so out of place was celebrated by angels giving a message to shepherds. Now, the story and the facts are amazing enough, but if we don't stop for a moment to think about the why, we lose the meaning, the significance of this event. And that's why I draw our attention here. If you'll allow me to give you an overview of Philippians 2, 1 through 11, it divides into two sections. Verses 1 through 5 contain the commands. Paul begins to speak of what to do, and these commands revolve around having joy. But the commands are not just dangling in air as if they are untethered to anything real and foundational. These commands are based upon the truths that are found in verses 6 through 11. In fact, it's verses 6 through 11 that contain the hymn or the song that we're focusing upon today. It's believed that these verses contained a hymn contain a hymn that was sung by the early church. And it was sung to teach the truth about who Jesus is. In fact, this passage is known as the kenosis passage. That word kenosis comes from verse 7. If you look at it, you'll see at the very beginning of verse 7 is the phrase, but made himself nothing. In the Greek, that is one word, and it is the word kenosis. Self-emptying. So this hymn gets its name from this act where Jesus steps out of, of heaven and takes on the form of humanity. This hymn was taught and sung to teach. I would remind you that all music, whether we listen to it or sing it, has a teaching element. Sometimes it may be very clear. Other times it's teaching a, a way of understanding the world. But the lyrics of songs are not neutral. So this hymn, sung by the early church, was to teach about who Jesus is, and who Jesus is gives us the recipe for finding joy in the midst of our trials. Joy, we find first mentioned in verse 2. 
Paul makes a, a plea with the church, a, an exhortation. Complete my joy. Now, there's nothing selfish in what Paul asking this church to make his joy full. In fact, every action we do is done with the idea that it will bring us joy and happiness. That's why we do what we do. And often our reactions are built around what we believe will give us joy. We are made to seek joy. So the issue is found, where do we seek it? Now, clearly we know that joy is found in Christ. In fact, in a few moments, we'll discuss verse 1 about what is found in Christ. But I want you to notice something. Paul does not remove joy from earth and focus only on joy that comes from heaven. He recognizes that his joy that comes from Christ is connected to the relationships that he experiences with other believers. In fact, if the church is indeed the body of Christ and our joy is found in Christ, that means we will gain joy from our relationships with other believers. That's why church is vital to our walk with Christ. One of the many reasons. So Paul is saying, because I love you, because I'm connected with you, make my joy complete. And written between the lines is the idea he desires their joy to be complete. Now, we are not left on our own to figure out how to have complete joy. Not only are we not left to figure it out, we are given the resources. Look at verse 1. Paul begins with a rhetorical statement. So, if there is, and that is phrased so to say, there is. The if is really to draw attention to the absurdity of thinking these things are not available in Christ. That's like saying, well, if you find a book at the library, bring it home. Of course you're going to find a book at the library. The library is full of books by definition. That if is to magnify or to, to draw attention to the fact that there are books available. So it is with Christ. So Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is. That sense of not being left on alone, but knowing that, that we will find exactly the help that we need. He says if there's any comfort from love. If there's any participation in the Spirit, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So he's saying that just as joy, just as encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy are available in Christ, so is joy. And where is it found? It's found within the body of Christ. So how does this take place? How is joy, how is your joy made full as a follower of Jesus? Paul gives four descriptions of what the church is to seek so that joy may be made full. First is this, have the same focus. Verse, one, verse 2, complete joy by being of the same mind. Now this is not a reference to being uniform in thinking. Right, we recognize we have different thoughts and different opinions. As the old saying goes, if you have three Baptists in the same room, you'll have four different opinions. We have different ways of looking at things. However, those different opinions and thoughts all fall under the umbrella of having one focus. That being bringing glory to Jesus Christ through the spread of the gospel. That is the one focus we are to have. So ultimately, with that focus clear in our thinking, our opinions, our thoughts, the way we view things become secondary to that focus. That's why Paul moves on and he says, having the same love. It's interesting that he doesn't define the same love for what? 
Now it's clear we know from the New Testament that first and foremost is our love for God. And from that flows love to one another. So he says, I want you to have the same love, the same source. To not have just a, a sentimental type love, but an agape love, which is the word used here. To have a sacrificial love for one another where each of you are seeking to demonstrate love by sacrifice. He says, after having the same focus, the same love, he says, have harmony. That's the phrase, being in full accord. It literally says, be of one soul. It speaks of sharing the same affections. To be excited about the same thing. You see, when you have an affection for something, you don't have a hard time talking about it. Think about what happens when you have two people who love and have an affection for the game of golf. When they get together, what do they start talking about shortly? Golf. If you have two people that love music, when they get together, guess what topic usually comes up? Music. We naturally talk about that which we love. So when he says that be in the same soul... It's saying to have the same affection for Christ that will spill out in your conversations with one another. So he says have the same mind, the same love, the same soul, the same affection. And finally he says of one mind, have the same purpose. Now if you're paying attention you'll notice something. Look at the beginning of verse 2. He says complete my joy by being of the same mind. And then he comes at the end of this verse and repeats again, being of one mind. In fact, thinking is central in this book of Philippians. So thinking and joy go hand in hand. He is saying, I want you to have the same purpose, focused on the same thing. And he says it's going to start in your thinking. Why? Because as the scripture says, as a person thinks, so is he. Your mindset is crucial to your actions, to your attitudes, and to your reactions. So step back with me for a moment and see the big picture. The goal is joy. Everyone in here wants joy. And Paul says joy comes within the body of Christ as we have the same focus, the same love, the same soul, that is the same affections, and the same purpose. So how do these things come about? They don't happen without effort. They come about through the cultivation of humility. That's what Paul picks up in verses 3 and 4. If we are to have full joy by having the same mind, same love, having the same spirit, having the same purpose, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In other words, don't do things out of a sense of superiority, out of pride, or, or things out of a sense of of trying to one-up someone. Act humbly. Verse 3 contains a great definition of humility. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. If we want joy, it begins as we seek how we can serve others by humbling ourselves. Not considering ourselves above serving one another. This message is very different from what we hear in the world. In fact, in the world we hear contradictory messages. I dare say in the past week, 
As we've celebrated Christmas, if you had received a dollar for every feel-good human interest story that was in the media, you may have earned $1,000 easily. We love stories of sacrifice and serving others at Christmas. But then, what do we hear the majority of the time? We hear stories that focus on the person who has power and control. We live in an atmosphere that says, I am the man. Look at me. The way of Christ is the way of serving others. The way of Christ is seeking His agenda. And it is seeking to live according to His way. I've shared this illustration with you before, but I do it again because I think it illustrates very clearly in contemporary terms the attitude that we are to have. In 1981, President Reagan was was attempted to be assassinated. A few years ago, I read a book about that day entitled Rawhide Down. Rawhide was President Reagan's name to the Secret Serviceman. And when he was shot, the radio was a blur with the phrase Rawhide Down. As the president was in the back of the limousine and they discovered blood, he was immediately driven very quickly to George Washington University Hospital. Where through x-rays, they determined there was a bullet lodged in his lung that needed to be removed surgically. Of course, the story is told that as President Reagan was in the operating room and the anesthesiologist was about to put him to sleep for the operation, Reagan looked up and said, I hope all of you are Republicans. To which the surgeon said, today we are, Mr. President. A few days after the surgery, the night nurse came into his room to administer some medicine. She was shocked to find the bed empty. Now, she knew he didn't leave the room. There were secret servicemen right outside. Then she heard a noise in the bathroom. She peeked through the cracked door and saw the President of the United States on his hands and knees with a towel cleaning up a mess on the bathroom floor. She immediately said, Mr. President, call us. We will do that for you. And he said, nope, this mess was mine. I'm going to clean it up. I'm not going to ask you to do something I would. That's humility. The President of the United States cleaning a bathroom floor. There's something even greater than that. Our Lord Jesus leaving heaven to come to this earth. If we want to see what humility looks like, if we want to see what it's like to not look for our own interests but to seek the interest of others, we have the example in verses 5 through 11. It's the kenosis hymn. It's what they sang about. If we are to have the mind of Christ, and notice he says the mind of Christ, not his heart. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Three times in this brief passage, he's already mentioned mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. He doesn't say heart because heart deals with desires. Sometimes our desire is not to serve. Sometimes our desire is to be selfish and to seek to be served. But the mind is to the heart like the steering wheel is to the car. The mind is to direct the desires of our heart in the way they should go. So that's why he says, have the mind of Christ within you, so that when we feel selfishness welling up within us, we counteract it by saying, no, 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 that's not right. This is the model of Jesus. What is the model of Jesus? Verse 6, even though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God something to be grasped. He was in the form of God. The Greek word for form there means that the outward expression revealed the inward reality. 
In other words, prior to the incarnation, were you to see Jesus in glory as a spirit, he would have radiated exactly what he is. It's kind of like if you were to give somebody a baseball bat for Christmas, but you did not have a, a box for the bat and you just wrapped the bat, it's pretty clear what it is from the wrapping paper, isn't it? There's no hiding that. So it was with Jesus prior to the incarnation. He was in the very being God. But he didn't count this equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, even though he was the very God of very God, he didn't hold on to that. But what did he do? He made himself nothing, taking the form. So this is subtraction by addition. Taking the form. Now the word form here is a different word. It's the word metamorphi. It's a form of that. At this point, he took the form of a servant without losing his divinity. Now, the outward form did not reflect the inward reality. In other words, there was nothing about Jesus when he walked the earth that would have caused you to look at him and say, Whoa, whoa, he's God in the flesh. Contrary to the popular works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, there was no glow around the head of Jesus. He looked normal. In fact, anthropologists believe that in the time of Jesus, the average male would have been about 5'8", and those of Jewish descent would have been dark-complected with dark curly hair. That may have been very well what Jesus looked like. But believe me, the outward form then did not reflect the inward reality. Why? He took in the form, taken the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. Now, as God in the flesh, he would stand under the very sun he made and sweat. As God in the flesh, he would sleep under the stars that he had created and feel a shiver in the night cold. As God in the flesh, he would walk the earth that he made and his feet would ache with every step. He experienced creation as we do. But notice... Being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He gave. The ultimate act of humility was of giving his very life. That's what brings joy. To say, Lord, my life is yours. I've died to self. I will seek to serve others. Pastor Stuart Briscoe puts it like this. The spirit of Christmas needs to be superseded by the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christmas is annual. The spirit of Christ is eternal. The spirit of Christmas is sentimental. The spirit of Christ is supernatural. The spirit of Christmas is a human product. The spirit of Christ is a divine person. So how do we apply this? How do we develop the mind of Christ so that we seek the interest of others more than the interest of ourselves? Well, let's start where Paul does in our thinking. If we are to have the mind of Christ and to act humbly, we have to think and ponder on Christ. Skip Heidzig, a popular pastor and author, reflects on his teenage years when he had gotten a job working with a carpenter. But as many people who began carpentry find out, he was finding his thumb with the hammer more than he was finding the nail. And he noticed that the carpenter he was working with was taking a little bit of sadistic glee and watching Skip 
hit the, ham, hit the nail, hit the nail, hit his thumb, hit his thumb. Finally, Skip said, okay, what's the secret? The carpenter smiled and said this. You need to stop looking at your thumb when you swing the hammer and look at the nail. You will always hit what you're looking at. How true. You'll hit what you're looking at. If we will keep the model of Christ in our thinking, that will spill over into our actions. So how do we do that? What do you need to do differently in 2021 to keep Jesus in the forethought of your mind? It may be picking up a community Bible journal and really diving into reading the scripture and sharing with friends so that as iron sharpens iron, we sharpen one another. It may be simply talking more about Jesus. You'll find there's something amazing when, when you begin to share, listen, this is what the Lord has done, or, or can you believe who Jesus is and what he did? Maybe singing. Taking some of the songs that we sing and, and maybe looking on the radio, listening to them on the radio or playing them over and over. It's disciplining our minds to think of Christ. Second thing we need to do, and this is very simple. Put humility into practice. Find ways to serve and do them. You see, it's very easy for our attitude to become self-centered. We all fight that. Many times we're like the little boy who wrote a letter to Santa who said, Dear Santa, there are three little boys who live in our house. There is Jeffrey, he is two. There is David, he is four. There is Norman, he is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. It's easy to say, I've got it together. But the reality is we're all like Jeffrey and David. We have our struggles. And true humility is saying, think of David and Jeffrey. Seek to serve those. Now I recognize that humbling ourselves can be painful. It can lead to a cross. Time doesn't permit me to dive into verses 9 through 11 to talk about how God exalted Jesus. But I would remind you that for every cross there's a resurrection. Following Christ means that we humble ourselves now so that God can be exalted throughout all eternity. And then our joy will be exponentially greater than anything we could imagine now. So it comes down to serving. How can you serve one another? That's the question I leave with you for application. Within your home, how can you serve each other? Don't over-spiritualize it. It may be something as simple as taking the initiative to empty the dishwasher and to load it. It may be something as simple as, I'll go out and start the car for her in the morning. Seeking ways we can serve. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. Lord, you have given us the Spirit, and the Spirit is the source of joy. And Father, you have placed us within a body of believers that we might experience joy to the fullest. So help us, Father, to experience that joy in learning to serve one another. Learning to put these truths into practice, O oh God. In big and small ways, help us to have the mind of Christ, who did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant in the likeness of man and humbling himself even to the point of being obedient in death upon a cross. Father, help us 
to live in the way that glorifies Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.